You've joined the Betamax Video Club, rewinding back to our favourite films of the 1980s. My name's Rich Nelson, and tonight I've rented something a little bit different. Joining me is Chris Oakley from Kipliss. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. Rich, good to be talking to you again. How are you? I'm very good. Um, now, the little bit different we've alluded to is uh, it's on the eve of the 2018 World Cup. So we've delved back into the archives and got copies of Goal and Hero, the official FIFA World Cup films of 1982 and 1986. In your football attic days, Chris, you covered um, a selection of the FIFA World Cup films. What's special about the 82 and 86 versions for you? Uh, two words, uh, Rick Wakeman. Uh, no, um, <laughs> um, I don't know. Well, I, actually, I say that. The music in those films is kind of an intrinsic part. And I would argue that in previous official World Cup films, you didn't get much in the way of music or at least no, no real soundtrack as such. Um, so, yeah, the music of Rick Wakeman, which is in both the sort of synth tunes of, of Rick Wakeman, are, um, are an important part. But also it's something about the slightly grainy quality of the of the film stock and also, of course, the fact that the narrator that you always get is someone, well, usually someone well-known, and we have two in, in these two films we're going to be talking about. So that adds an, an element of interest. It's, it's And the other thing as well, obviously you see a lot of football in these World Cup films, but um, a lot of it is shown from the point of view of like pitch side rather than like when you're watching a football match on TV, the, the camera is up in the stands and you have this lofty view looking down on the pitch. And it's so you get a much more sort of, I suppose, a personal interaction with what's happening on the pitch. They're, they allow the, the camera to sort of linger on certain players rather than cutting to wherever the ball's gone next so it's it's a bit different from watching a football match on tv because there's all these other elements that you wouldn't get in that situation i, I mean these two are essentially documentaries i suppose a a, pro, a marketing product produced by fifa or whoever their um, yeah. their bedfellows are at the time but these and and there were a, a bit of a phase where in the early days of the film, I believe it was the 1954 World Cup, they had a very convoluted story, uh, almost a, a plot line going through the tournament about a young boy's efforts to get to the final and uh, and this, that and the other. Whereas, oh yeah, that was, was it 54? That was 1970, I think. Oh, Unless, unless they did it twice, yeah. but yeah, yeah. But it, I know, I take your point. Yeah, yeah. They went back to the well. But this time round, they've um, <laughs> they've brought us two of British cinema or Hollywood cinema's biggest names to narrate. For the 1982 World Cup, you had Sean Connery narrating, and for 1986, Michael Caine, which gives it some gravitas in a strange sort of scenario. But both, as you mentioned already, soundtrack by Rick Wakeman. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, taking the narration first, I think the couple of the earlier films, um, and as I say, they, they retrospectively created official films from the like the 54 World Cup and you know, 58, 62 and all of that sort of thing. And for those, I think one of them, they got, who's the guy? Steve Hudson, I think it was, who's the guy who used to do the old Spice advert, uh, the voiceover <laughs> on that, you know, the mark of a man, yeah. some voiceover artist, and, and a pretty good one, actually. But um, So they had these kind of non-personalities, if you like, with the greatest respect to Steve Hudson, doing these things. And then gradually over time, they thought, well, we'll get somebody like a big name actor. And um, I think Sean Connery really is one of the best ones they've had. because And 
coupled with the fact that he was given a script that had a bit of humour in it as well. So therefore, he could lighten the mood. And you just know he's got that slight glint in his eye, Sean Connery, when he cracks these little sort of jokes and things. Michael Caine is capable of doing that as well, but the script was different. And I think there was an effort to have a lot more gravitas in the second film. I mean, the second film was called Hero. So it's it's all about, you know, the legend and, you know, Diego Maradona and so I think they felt maybe they couldn't go too heavy on the on the humor with that one but um but they both do a great job particularly Sean Connery and Rick Wakeman I mean I'm I I I mean I like him don't get me wrong I wouldn't say I'm a fan of his in the sense that I've got lots of his albums or anything like that you know I'm no sort of yes aficionado or anything like that but but I, when you see him on interviews, he's very avuncular. He's he's very funny. He comes across as a quite a, uh, a nice guy. Someone you'd go out and have a not just a drink, but probably a whole night's worth of drink uh, with him, and 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 have a bloody good time with him. So I've got I've got some affection for him. And his synth-based music that he's got in these two films, which are actually kind of similar, is is really nice, and it just sets it in that period in the nineteen eighties, really. Although it's not really like the sort of chart sort of synth music that was going around at the time. It was. Uh, it's. It's still very eighties, and um, and it just helps move things along quite nicely in both films. Now, I very much agree with you about the narration. I think um, watching both films again quite recently, the nineteen eighty two film with Connery, he really did go to town. I think his. I mean, obviously, he's got such a distinctive accent, and and I guess someone has written this script for him. This this isn't him just ad libbing. There yeah. there were and. Again, we're going back to this 36 years later, God. Mm. And (laughs) there's very much a a slight tinge of that humour that was definitely acceptable back then, and you definitely can't imagine now. You can imagine if uh, no, the, the uh, 2018 video, I don't know, I don't even remember seeing one for 2014, but um, having some sort of mm. edgy comedian or edgy sort of script towards it would be would be a very brave move <laughs> yeah um i don't I, do you know i have lost track of whether they're still making world cup films i presume they are but they're not they're never really mentioned in, in i don't know it's, you know you never hear people saying oh you know the, the, they've just released the new film i can remember for the 86 film when i was watching saturday superstore <laughs> <laughs> ask your grandparents um and they were they, there was a thing on there. I think there was a competition on there for um, you know winning a copy of the recently released hip film called Hero, and it was so it was even mentioned on mainstream TV. Um, you don't really get that anymore. As for getting in a yeah some kind of edgy comedian, it's would it work in the same way? I, I, maybe it could. I don't know. Depending on who they picked, but it would probably be like you know Nish Kumar or <laughs> somebody knowing the way things are these days. But in terms of the, you mentioned the script. For eighty two, do you know who wrote that script? Because I mean, it's the guy is not particularly well known in in terms of being a personality. But do you know who wrote the script for that? Um, no, I didn't see the credits. To be honest, right? It was a guy called um, Stan Hay, and here's a trivia fact for all listeners: um, he is the guy who wrote a lot of the scripts for Alfie Zane Pet. Um, ah. So, so he's got form in terms of writing comedy. And it wasn't like flooded with jokes in that '82 film, but there were there were nice little sort of things like um, I think Sean Connery talks about Gentile of of Italy as being the sort of guy who he likes to change shirts during a match rather than afterwards. And there's these little kind of gags that kind of drop in. 
and they're quite nice, really. And I, you know, it works well. It's a shame there wasn't more of it. I seem to remember that when I watched those films back in like the early '90s, which is when when I saw them for the first time. I remember them being sort of quite similar, and yet just watching them back in the last forty-eight hours, actually, they, they both have a different tone to them, and particularly with regards to the narration. Watching the Spanish one, it's interesting that there were there was a lot more emphasis on the the sort of places where the matches or the matches were being held, and also mm. the section before the semi-finals when they were talking about the fans coming to terms with the fact that both the host nation, Spain, and the favourites, Brazil, are being knocked out. And they had a very sure. long montage, very long montage about how life in Spain was returning to normal. And now this is 1982. It seemed like most of Spain were either old people going around their daily business, people having a siesta, or <laughs> lots of topless women on beaches. Well, yes, that was quite. <laughs> I was going to say that was quite quite eye opening for me as a as a nineteen year old. I was I thought I'm, I'm glad I bought this VHS tape. It was good. But yeah, no, you're right. It was a very very sort of stereotypical slice of Spanish life thing. You know, pincho bars, people sitting outside having a an aperitif, and you know, watching the game on TV, and people slumbering in the in the shade in the town square and all that kind of stuff and and yeah as you say like people just having a bit of a mooch down the beach I, I suppose it must have been a bit like that but you do maybe it's just us being kind of cynics in the modern era we you, know, you kind of look back at that and think did, did things just completely just switch off then once spain and brazil went out because obviously you've still got two well three four if you include the third place match uh you know pretty big games still to come but i guess spain being the football playing nation that it is they would would have um would have thought, oh, yeah, it's not, it's not quite the World Cup we were hoping for now. So, uh, yeah, they may have just kind of switched off a bit mentally. But, um, but yeah, you, you're absolutely right. You don't really get that in the 86 film. The only thing that's in the 86 film, without sort of jumping ahead here, is the bit at the beginning, which is all about the, where there'd been, recently been an earthquake in Mexico City. And then after that, it's pretty much all football, football, football. So I guess that's why I like the 82 film more. There's a, a lot more parochial stuff that gets dropped in here and there particularly as you say just before the semi-final starts and one thing that i suppose in a strange way watching both the 82 and the 86 film is that in the 82 film the early part focuses on argentina who are the holders diego maradona's exploits as an emerging world talent uh, he just signed for barcelona he was playing in spain and it, of course we mostly know what happened in 86 and we'll go on to that, but he was very much on the cusp of greatness. And yet in 82, he was seemingly frustrated. There was a lot of fouling and we talked about Gentile already and Sean Connery describing him as a human pinball, which is quite apt given his, uh, <laughs> unique, his unique, but his, certainly his build, which in the current climate would, he'd never be touched really i think uh he'd, <laughs> he'd struggled to get yeah. the, the current levels of fitness and so on <laughs> there was a lot of talking about how he was born into poverty had just been bought by spanish club barcelona for over four million pounds all these very sort of weird little angles of him playing it was very interesting to watch because as you talked about it was filmed more like a, a montage in a hollywood film with lots of slow motion and it would cut to players sort of holding their faces in agony after missing a shot or something like that mm. and watching maradona 
most, and I guess now knowing what he went on to, it's interesting to see him so frustrated on a film, although Sean Connery sounded like he was enjoying it very much. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, again, this is being a kind of cynic, that you when you l- watch the film and you get this narrative, uh, as you quite rightly said, about... Maradona having the weight of a nation on his shoulders and this, that, that, that. I mean, that was mirrored in the 86 film when they were talking about Hugo Sanchez playing in front of a home crowd in Mexico as well. So you get the impression a bit that it's been written by someone who's read a couple of issues of World Soccer and thought, ah, <laughs> I can write a backstory. I can work this out. Yeah, he's, he's playing in front of, yeah, he's just signed for Barcelona. So yeah, he's playing in a Spanish uh, stadium. So, and you, it's almost kind of, not, it sounds terrible, but it's almost like writing a backstory by numbers. But, it, you know, but uh, like I say, when I was like 19, I didn't really sort of, I wasn't so cynical. <laughs> I was more naive and it was fine. And it's it's okay. I mean, if you want to go along with it, but I'm, I'm not sure to what extent he was under that much pressure. Because, yes, he was an emerging talent, but it took him a long while to get to that point um, while he was still playing in Argentina. So it's there would probably have been a hell of a lot of people watching the 1982 World Cup, they would never even have heard of Maradona at that point, let alone be willing him to, to do more. 86 would have been a different story, I think, but um, it, his star had risen much more by that point. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting that the way that the, the script sort of tries to send you off down these little avenues, but in terms of actual fact rather than sort of speculation, it's I'd, I'd be inclined to think that there's not much factual content rather than story there but I'm, I'm happy to go along with it all the same really yeah I'd love to have heard them reference his trial with uh, Sheffield United or something like that <laughs> uh, I think yeah. that was that would be what 77 78 yeah. but even then just a little tidbit like that I suppose would would be interesting but then back then it's I suppose catering for an audience who in the pre-internet and pre-championship manager days when not everyone knows everything about everyone it's a little bit easier to, to keep things bland. Well, indeed, indeed. Um, yeah. Once Argentina got knocked out, and this is one of the strange things about these films, is that they don't go chronologically. They tend to, <laughs> they'll take they'll take a, a, one of the bigger teams and follow their progress throughout the tournament. And then once that team, so in this case Argentina, Argentina have been knocked out, right, let's go back to the beginning and start with another team and see how they go. So they've gone back, in this case, to Brazil. I guess conveniently, uh, they happen to be playing Scotland in their first game. So it gives Sean Connery and his his scriptwriter a bit of chance to play. And I did love the line... A confrontation between the nation that thinks it's the best at football and the one that knows it's the best might have been the cue for aggravation. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote that down as well. I love that line, yeah. Yeah, it's a good little reference to was it the 78 World Cup when Scotland went out to Argentina genuinely having ambitions of winning the title. But the um, the footage of the... And then there was a lot of footage of the crowd because I guess Brazil, they're always good value to put on the telly. It's the, the almost mm. the stereotype of the samba and people having fun. And there were lots of clips of people just dancing around in, in the city and in the ground, being generally followed around by a lot of sunburnt, drunk-looking Scotsmen. <laughs> yeah. And again, the more you watch those films, if you happen to watch them over and over again, the more aware you become that actually the, the crowd scenes 
could frankly have been filmed anywhere, and they oh, but they just thought we've, we've that it could have been filmed outside the stadium or inside the stadium. It could have been filmed back in Brazil. It could have been filmed in sort of South London. That's having a kind of Brazilian <laughs> carnival weekend or something. You know, it's um, but and but they use it a lot, and it, it helps to build the uh, the sense of occasion. You know, it's Brazil. Brazil are playing, but they use it more often than you think. They keep cutting back to these kind of bikini-clad women, and I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I'm sorry to sort of shame these people, um, cameramen or whatever, but there's a lot of kind of looking at women's backsides and, and <laughs> you know, chests and stuff. And again, you, I had to do a lot of research to come to that, uh, come to that conclusion. But it, you, you sort of think, okay, yeah, we, we get it now. There's there's Brazilians in the crowd, great. But um, but it's it's interesting. They could, I think they could have made a bit more of that bit where you see the Scottish fans arriving because Connery says something like I can't remember the exact wording, but he suggests that there was the potential for a big kind of clash of the fans because you know British fans at that time, particularly English ones, mm. you know, start a fight in a phone box kind of thing, and so therefore it could have all exploded. But actually, you know, the Brazilian fans are great because they're into samba and drinking coffee and beach football and stuff. So everyone got along like a house on fire. And uh, I think they could have built on that a little bit. But I, I was always sort of pleased. I mean, the, the David Neri goal, which Scotland scored first in that game mm. against Brazil, is one of my all-time favourites. I remember seeing it at the time and thinking how amazing. He's basically scored a Brazilian goal against the Brazilians. <laughs> I thought that, that's, it doesn't get any better than that. Uh, top corner there. Yeah, it was a lovely finish. Oh, a bit of a toe poke, but I don't, I don't, you know, I'd take that one quite happily. <laughs> um, it, that was a, sort of a nice sort of sequence, really, with the with the Brazilians. But I get sorry, going back to what you said a minute ago about the jumping backwards and forwards in time. I mean, the 1986 film is particularly terrible for that. Um, but the 82 film at least tries to bring in other teams along the way. They, they pick a few of the main, main teams, like Brazil, Italy, you know, obviously Spain, England later on, and they try and kind of just drop the teams in as they're going along. Yeah, with the 86 film, it's really, you've got to have like a PhD in tournament organisation. You just think, well, hang on, so right, we were, we were dealing with that game. So is this the first round now or the second round? And then it, that one is really, really bad. Apologies. I mean, I, I am half Scottish and I shouldn't be making too many jokes, but to, we, we know full well that this Scotland game was in the first round because they've never got past it. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to upset half my family there. Um, <laughs> But even seeing you know Sean Connery and his scriptwriter tearing into Alan Ruff a little bit. <laughs> now Alan Ruff wasn't a particularly large goalkeeper, and it was made to look particularly small. But it didn't help having Connery saying, "I bet he wishes he'd had a stepladder." <laughs> I think it was after the first goal went in, and he said, "And Ruff gets some exercise that may come in useful as he picks the ball out the back of the net." And Alan Ruff gets the sort of exercise that may prove useful in the circumstances. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of a bit self-indulgent, and I'm, I, I bet he sort of questioned the the scriptwriters and the and the editors. Like, do I have to say this line? You know, it's, it's, I'm saying bad things yeah. about the Scots here for crying out loud. You know, but there's a few there's a few lines like that which you sort of think, oh, it's a bit like in the um, in the section where they're talking about England in their last game, which they had to win against Spain. Um, I think he, he refers Connery refers to Keegan's clumsy header. And I'm like, well, let's see how well you do if you pulled on a football shirt in front of, you know, 65,000 fans. I mean, and a few little comments. The script writer's taken a bit of a liberty there, but all right, fair enough. Go with that. 
at least we know from Hollywood evidence um, that Michael Caine has played football at a reasonable level, from uh, <laughs> yes, albeit against the Nazis. <laughs> uh, and one bit going that was probably the last time we'll touch on Scotland anyway is um, the I did like the fact that when I think it was Brazil's fourth goal which links nicely to Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, as, uh, as it was scored by Junior, <laughs> which uh, was a nice little prelude for that. There's a few, there's a, there's a few a rather iffy mispronunciations by Connery in the, in the film. There's, <clears throat> I think he refers to uh, Rochito, who apparently is the, uh, the French yeah. uh, player, uh, Harold Shoemaker, which is a bit of a literal translation of um, the, the German <laughs> keeper's name, I think, and uh, Briegel, uh, which is Peter Briegel, I think, the, the German player. And he has, oh. Yeah, he's, he, he doesn't quite get the pronunciation right, bless him, but he's, he's doing his best. He is. Now, you <laughs> now live in New Zealand, who are the next team to get a little bit of coverage. Um, this was their first World Cup. Mm. A lot yep. was made about the... Uh, sort of epic voyage they made for qualification in the Oceania region. Um, now, of course, they did slightly better in 2010, which was just before you live there. Um, is this mm-hmm. are there? Is this ever brought up in your sort of circles? Do you ever? Is there ever any pride in this New Zealand appearance, knowing full well that football is very much a third or fourth place in the rankings of sport over there? Well, people know, people remember it well. The fact that they, you know, New Zealand, excuse me, New Zealand qualified for the 1982 World Cup. They remember it well. To a slightly lesser extent, the same for 2010. But in terms of like the World Cup coming around, as it is as we speak, it doesn't. In my experience, at least, it doesn't. You never really hear it coming up in conversation. People don't really seem to talk about it. It will feature on the news and on TV and in newspapers and all of that. Um, so it's not like it's not covered. But I think once they know that New Zealand haven't qualified for a World Cup, it's just like, well, we can forget about that and mm-hmm. move on. At least that's my perception. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there and there are a lot of Brits living over here, so it's not like there's no one interested here. But you're you're absolutely right to say that it does fall well down the the list. I mean, at the moment it's kind of rugby playing season, so that's the the sort of super rugby competition which involves. South African teams and and uh, Australian teams that's kind of going on as well and and it will be on TV the World Cup here but it's 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 really not kind of high in, in the in the priorities and but but they do remember eighty two it's just going further and further into the past now unfortunately yeah I mean it's funny looking back and and what Connery mentions is that most of the players for New Zealand are amateurs and and I, I didn't get the name of the manager but it sounds like most of the coaching staff are, are English or British yeah. and his line saying that. The amateurs of New Zealand take on another amateur side in the Soviet <laughs> Union, who at the time yeah. were, you know, some of their players and some of their clubs were doing incredibly well in European football. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's another good line, actually. A nice little subtle one. You have to kind of read that back in your head. Oh, yeah, I get it. But yeah, the, the um, New Zealand coach uh, is a guy called John Adshead, who I think was from up north, up in Tyneside, was it somewhere like that? I think. And there are, or there were, a lot of players in that squad who are of English or Scottish descent, either by you know, one generation removed, or maybe were actually even born in the UK and just repatriated when they were younger or whatever. So, yeah, it's very fair to say that that's a British sort of dominated squad. Much less so nowadays. It's much more sort of eclectic, and you've got influences of people whose parentage is from many, many 
other countries around the world these days. But yeah, you can hear on the, there's a section on the, where they're on the coach traveling to that game against the Soviet Union. You hear the coach talking, he's sort of talking like that, right? So, you know, and you think, oh, he sounds like a real Kiwi. Uh, <laughs> and and yeah, the, and it's just it's a it's a it feels like a sort of British group of players to me when I see that. And you look at, I mean, a, a few of them actually went over and played in in England. I think there's, um, I forget the guy's name. There's one who played for was it Winton Roofer or something like played for Norwich or somebody like that. There's a, a few of them have got experience. I think of playing in the English leagues, or they say had at the time. So yeah, I mean, New Zealand went out you know, reasonably with some dignity. But next we go to a team that really went out with no dignity at all, and that was Q8. Now, this was their, I believe, their only appearance at the World Cup. But Connery did not hold back with his thoughts on the uh, the Sheikh who was responsible for their presence there. Yeah. Well, that's the big story, of course, of, you know, everyone mentions when they look back on 82, they talk about the Sheikh who uh, kind of ordered the players off the pitch because there was this goal that was scored by France where supposedly they heard a, a whistle in the crowd so all the Q80 players stopped and the who I can't remember who it was who scores it Tigano or somebody yeah. like that went through and, and scored and so there's this big protest um, I think I'm right in saying having seen a few nostalgia based TV programs down the years that actually this shake Q80 shake actually was the one who got them to carry on playing. He wasn't the one who got them to come off the pitch. I think it was the players who decided amongst themselves that that's what they had to do. But he was the one who came down to the pitch, the shake, and sort of said, no, you've got to carry on. So it was a slightly confusing sort of story. But yeah, there's this line he does where he says something like... For his indiscreet comments, the prince was later fined £5,000. Or one minute's wages. You, go, you know, you rich so and so. It's a bit ironic coming from Connery, who I believe <laughs> it wasn't long after that he became a tax exile, was it? Or, or is that his current status? This was around the time he probably moved to Spain after seeing all those topless women on the beaches, thinking, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, "I'll have some of that." He said, "Yeah." We've got New Zealand are out, Scotland are out, Q8 are out. Uh, Cameroon get a lot of praise. Um, it was their match against Italy where there was a lot of that sort of typical patronising, well, didn't they do well? Now for a team a team who get knocked out while being unbeaten, is, I suppose it's ironic, but, uh, they, you know, they, they played some good football. And, and I guess jumping a little bit further ahead, Connery did say they won't be underestimated again, which is true until England played them in 1990 and almost went out of the quarterfinals. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was surprised that, Connery didn't get the phrase plucky Africans in there just to kind of really uh, patronise them a bit more. Yeah, I I remember at the time, I I actually remember watching that Italy-Cameroon match right at the start of the tournament. It was about the second game in the whole thing, back as like a 10-year-old at the time. And obviously Cameroon, unknown quantity, if you want to go for another little um, gag. And... But at the time, they didn't seem like a very strong football-playing country, which is understandable, their first tournament. But Connery, again, sort of, or the, rather Stan Hay, the, the scriptwriter, sort of decides to sort of beef them up a bit in stature and sort of say that they'll... This this wasn't the World Cup for them, but they'll be back and they'll be they'll be great. And as I say, yeah, they as you said, they, they troubled England, and it was quite nice actually seeing the the footage of them in their hotel, um, having a having a meal uh, on the coach, singing in the coach, and stuff like that. So, and this is the stuff that you don't get on TV. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in back in the day when I was a kid, you used to maybe see 
something on football focus or something like that or on the ball and they'd do a little report but it was almost like oh we've got to do something because we've got cameras over there in Spain so we might as well send them out but this was an intrinsic part of the film you did get to see some of the players in the changing room in the in a hotel or doing training and that's kind of what added that nice element to the film it fills out the whole story quite nicely that you know these days it's very it's almost become a, a joke in itself that uh, if BBC or ITV are showing a football match they'll instinctively and now the latest from the England camp and they'll go off to where <laughs> I, I remember the coverage of Italia 90 where they regularly I think Jim Rosenthal was based with the England squad and they had the clips of uh, yeah. Nigel Kennedy coming in to play violin and all the players looking like they'd rather be anywhere else but there <laughs> you know, yeah. and things like that. And this is nice, I suppose, it being an official FIFA film or the production company on behalf of FIFA, they're going to be given all sorts of license to basically go access all areas. So it's nice to see these these side of mm-hmm. things that you, you very rarely see. I was just going to say, I, I, I um, heard an interview a few years ago now, and it was one of the guys that was that worked on the team that went and did many of these World Cup films. I can't remember the guy's name, but... Um, but yeah, he he confirms pretty much what you just said. He, you know, we we'd be allowed to just sort of pitch up anywhere we like. We could just walk into the stadium. We could do some shots from before the kickoff with the crowd arriving. We could pretty much we had free reign to go anywhere. And I thought, wow, that's the sort of job I'd love. Just to yeah, I've got a camera. Can I go in that room? Yeah, great. I'll film something in there and, and just wander around with a with a badge on your lapel, and and that's good enough, really. So it seemed. But um, yeah, very envious of that or those those guys that were working on on those films. Now, the host nation Spain come in at this point. Now, there's little jokes about because they they play an advert for, I believe, a menswear company where they're slide tackling in these very nice looking suits and everything. It's all all very odd. I guess this now being an international film, but still this works well for a British audience because there's a lot of emphasis on the the game they played against Northern Ireland. Jerry Armstrong seems to have made a career out of this match. I think until recently he was very much the go-to person on Sky's Spanish football coverage. Northern Ireland beat Spain to go through to... Did they go through to the next round? They did, didn't they? Um, they did, uh, yeah, yeah, that was when Connery said, said they had to. They were obliged to cancel their prematurely booked flight home. That's right, yeah, yeah. Who knew? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can remember that night, actually, the Northern Ireland-Spain game. My dad, my mum my used to go to uh, play bingo one night every week. And um, so my dad would have to sort of drive her to this, basically this pub um, that was about a couple of miles away. And I remember that night, he, he sort of said, okay, come on, we've got to jump in the car, take your mum to bingo. And on the way back, he put the radio on. It was Radio 2, and they were commentating on that game. And it was, that was, I didn't actually see it at the time, but I heard heard the commentary I thought, my God, Northern Ireland are beating Spain. <laughs> it was just like a big, really big deal. So, um, yeah, they. I think Northern Ireland went on and played France and Austria, I want to say, in the next round. But that's just my memory maybe failing me. Yeah, I think as a result of that result, Spain ended up going through um, a different route and they weren't happy. But they did say that there were sort of reluctant celebrations. Now, they showed some footage... And I'm not sure where in Spain it was, and it was supposed to be the Spanish fans celebrating. But there were some huge fires that looked more reminiscent from the Wicker Man <laughs> than, than any sort of celebration. Yeah. yeah, they looked a little bit kind of out of control. <laughs> You're expecting Edward Woodward to pop up over a hill shouting something. Oh, God! Oh, Jesus Christ! And this is when 
I suppose finally, uh, England make their appearance. Now, their first match was against France. This was now 1982. England, England's reputation, or certainly the English fans' reputation abroad, was starting to become very much problematic. There was a lot of emphasis on the Spanish police there with their dogs being very overbearing, and and there were a couple of references to it later on. There wasn't a huge amount, really, other than England's, uh, as they refer to it, as a, uh, a canaveral countdown, their goal scoring, as it went from 3-2-1-0. A, tor- a tournament fraught with injuries and some poor selections, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, with, at that point, of course, England's only, a, or English football is only a, a few years away from being um, banned from European competition. So you can see the direction of travel for that. And yeah, probably worthwhile, worthy of mentioning that. In fact, there's a, I've got a friend of mine who is from Bilbao in, in uh, northern Spain and basically a friend of my wife who's become a good friend of mine over the years. And I remember when we first met, um, I said, oh, Bilbao. I said, uh, that's that's where uh, England played um, some of their games in the uh, in the 82 World Cup. And he said, oh, yes. He said, the 82 World Cup, yes, he said, the, the English fans, they destroyed our town centre. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll be off then. Bye. I was like, oh, here I am, the English embodiment of, you know, uh, of all those, not all those fans, but a, a, a football fan. I thought, oh, I just wanted the, the earth to open up and swallow me at that point. But it really brought home to me, like, how bad they were, those fans, or a lot of them anyway, um, the more violent Ooh. ones. So, um um, and it always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable when they go to that point of the film where you see all these fans going, rah, 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 and you think, oh, God, it's those morons again. And, <laughs> and even in, I think it's in the, when they show the, the game against France, uh, they're showing you all the on-pitch action, shall we say, and goals being scored. And then there's this bit where they cut back to the crowd and there's this sudden sort of surge of um, fans having to kind of retreat further up the terrace as the sort of uh, police move in and, it's it's really it is uncomfortable viewing even now they didn't sort of dwell on it too long in the film but you know that it's kind of that's how it was um, as for the on the pitch uh, the thing I remember because I'm being a West Ham fan my childhood hero was Trevor Brooking and um, I was always desperate that he would get his chance to play in the '82 World Cup but as we know with with Keegan he was sort of sidelined until about the last 20 minutes I think it was of the last game against against Spain so um, yeah all terribly frustrating and we all know what happened with uh, Keegan in that last game. It's funny because I, I, I know Trevor Brooking's brother, oh. Tony. We, I say work, both assist at a local non-league club near to where I am anyway. Yeah. And he made a couple of references to it. Not He, he didn't go around talking about it a huge amount, but uh, mm. it came up in conversation a couple of times and uh, it was sort of very surreal knowing that. But mm. uh, also it's funny because I guess at that time Keegan was probably maybe Shilton their only world-class or certainly European-class player. Hmm. There, there wasn't men- even Connery mentioned about Glenn Hoddle being so tragically neglected, yeah. which many probably probably did something wrong in a previous life. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> moving on, moving on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> England, England went out, and uh, even if they did have, I know this will cause some controversy with some of your football attic fans, uh, a, a set of kits that I was very fond of. Well, yes, well, indeed, yes. Um, the England ones, you mean? Yeah, they're yeah among my favourites yeah, yeah. as well. And um, 
yeah, a, 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 a kit which tragically didn't uh, get to see its full exposure on uh, on the world stage in that tournament. But, uh, but never mind. <laughs> well, we're moving on, and I think we're at the quarterfinal stage now. We've come back to Brazil, but they, they've come across Italy, which we haven't seen a huge amount of other than in, in reference. Uh, we're talking about Paolo Rossi. There was a little mention of the fact that he'd just returned from a two-year bribery scandal ban and the fact that he hadn't scored. He was playing with a ball and chain. Um, <laughs> this is the sort of yeah. <laughs> this is the sort of thing that I, I mean, even when Italy won the World Cup last time, there was a, a bribery scandal brewing. On, on the other hand, the, the World Cup that's about to start, Italy aren't even there. But it's interesting that the eventual winners didn't get a huge amount of coverage in this film until quite a bit later on. And I can kind of get that because I remember at the time, the you know, you'd pick up the Radio Times or whatever and there'd, there'd be a feature in there like where all the commentators are sort of trying to predict who they think is going to win. And nobody would have gone for Italy. I don't remember Italy being on the radar back then because they hadn't really won anything for a long time. So they were sort of they were kind of the dark horses. Obviously, a, a, a strong football playing country, but not really renowned for winning anything in major tournaments as such. Not not really. And so you can t- you can see that with the eighty six film, they know that Argentina are going to win. So they a lot of the film features Argentina. They make make a point of putting them right in the in the centre of the, the, the audience's focus. But with, with this, I don't know if they were trying to kind of create a sense of um, surprise towards the end of the film, that, oh, look, Italy have come through and gonna, they're going to win it. But the focus was more on Brazil still. You know, they were showing you the, all the Brazilian players in training and the samba comes back again and uh, all the bikini-clad female <laughs> fans and, and all of that. And then there's even the uh, Connor even makes a sort of point of saying that the even the Italians um, in training don't look as graceful as as the Brazilians, but then neither would Nureyev by comparison. You just see these kind of bedraggled kind of individuals in the Italian squad sort of running around a track. I just remember being devastated though by as a kid. I, I really wanted Brazil to win. I thought they were like the best thing that had ever happened to to world football. And then when it, Italy came along and knocked them out, I just I, it was like funereal kind of feeling that I had is how dare you knock out the best bloody team in the world Italy like you know, we've got a Paolo Rossi hasn't he been bloody playing for the last couple of years and yet you've got the <laughs> cheek to come here and score a hat trick or whatever it was in that game I was really devastated as a kid by that but um yes I'm not even sure I can talk about it now to be honest <laughs> I mean it's funny because even now 2018 this Brazil side is still I guess along with perhaps the Holland of the 70s and maybe Hungary in the 50s, the, the greatest team to have never won the World Cup. Mm. And, and even looking at some of the players, and uh, s- suppose they must have known about Socrates because when he scored... Socrates, the elegant Brazilian captain, slots an equaliser with a surgical precision befitting a doctor. I'd like to think they knew he was actually a doctor. <laughs> this wasn't just a... Ha- they happened to luck out on this pun. Um <laughs> But, you know, this was Socrates, uh, Zico at his peak. And one of the things that I found, again, sort of preempting, I think it was 2002, because Falcao scored um, the equaliser. And it said, Falcao, who plays for an Italian club, risks the sack by equalising. Now, of course, yeah. that happened to a Korean player in 2002. Mm-hmm. I think it was playing at Perugia. 
and the chairman sacked him because he scored against Italy. And you kind yeah. of think like it's almost history repeating itself. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of things like that in the film, actually, where you sort of think, oh, it's almost like he knew what was going to happen later in time, actually. But yeah, I think the, the Socrates thing, I think it was known that he was, he had a, he'd qualified as a doctor or whatever. So I think they would have got that based on facts rather than a lucky guess. This is Italy progressing at the expense of Brazil, which seems like it engineered the section about the topless women and the siestas and the stereotypes. Now, something I didn't really know, and, and I, I was didn't really know much about this World Cup. It was 86 that was the, the first one that popped up on my radar. Poland made it through to the semi-final. And if you'd been watching this film, completely out of nowhere, it's as though they were dropped in the tournament and got buys through to the semi-final. Well, yeah, it's, that's a really strange one. Um, if you're thinking of these two films together uh, and the, the sense of, okay, who are we going to focus on, which teams end up going through to the, the latter stages of the tournament, you would have thought someone would have gone, oh, yeah, Poland, because they were in the semi-finals. But no, you're absolutely right. There's no mention of them. And yet they had a few great players that were still hanging on from the 70s, like Lato and... Boniek and people like that, they were a decent side. But I think because they struggled, that, that first round group that had Italy, Peru, Poland and Cameroon, it wasn't the most exciting group in the world. So I think that probably the um, people in charge of making the film probably thought, we just got to, yeah, that's that's not even worth like looking at. And then they suddenly went, oh, hang on, Poland got in the last four. So it's, yeah, they must have just been influenced by the first round group, I think. This was, I think, Poland's... Third, second semi-final in three tournaments because they got oh. to the semi in 74, hadn't they? That's right. It's not like not like they came out of nowhere. You know, almost like it, uh, Belgium in 86, they got to the semis. You know, again, this was a decent Belgian team, but mm. a team that don't perhaps get the, the reference or the, the mention in history they deserve. But there were a couple of, let's say, laboured puns where Italy started to, because they took an early lead and, and got quite aggressive and there was mention of some player being polaxed. <laughs> Graziani, yeah. Yeah, and then afterwards... Must have been eating an awful lot of humble pizza. Yeah, by that point I'm thinking the script's kind of like, we're, we're heading towards the bottom bottom of the barrel, I think, at this point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was a bit, there's a nice bit where they, um, again, from sort of pitch side, from from a pitch level, you see, I think it was Conte got pushed by an, uh, by a, a Polish player and he ends up diving over the advertising boards and he sort of crashes into this pile of uh, cameramen and people and they sort of pick up on that. And as you say, yeah, Graziani was poleaxed and it was said with by Connery with just enough intonation to just make you aware that actually there was a joke in there. Did you just did you hear what I said there? <laughs> you know? So, uh, yeah, it was quite nice, a little subtle one for Connery. And in the other semi-final, it's West Germany. We must make sure it's still West Germany at this point <laughs> against France. This game's remembered for one particular incident. Of course, it's the Schumacher, not Schumacher, on Batistom. But Connery yeah. did open by talking about the French squad's dynamic and how... And improved squad spirit by sending home Larius. He'd been having an affair with the captain's wife, Madame Platini. Football's not always about diagonal runs. I'll be brutally honest, I didn't get that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so pleased you said that, because I was thinking, I, I, I'm struggling here, but I'm sure that must be a reference to something, but I don't know what it is. And I thought, maybe if I don't mention it, it'll stop me looking stupid, but let's be stupid together, because I didn't get that either. 
No, that was an odd one. I think Schumacher, before the incident, he did, I think, show a bit of physical prowess towards someone. And Connery said, The message is clear. Come near me again and I'll do you. Very aggressive. Yeah, it said with a, a real kind of Scot- Scottish kind of like, you know, mm. I'll, uh, I'll give you a Glasgow kiss if you come near me. Yeah, it's kind do of like, yeah, I'll do you. <laughs> I thought it was quite good, actually. But of course, the, the incident was uh, Battiston was a sub, was through on goal and pushed the ball past Schumacher, who completely ignored the ball, flew into Battiston mm. with his knee. And I believe he lost several teeth. Uh, it was knocked unconscious, yeah. had to be uh, hauled off the field. And the referee didn't even give a foul. No, um, absolutely. Because because yeah, it was in the box, wasn't it? It was just on the edge of the box. Yeah. I mean, or was it just yes. a free kick penalty? Anything would have done. And there was like nothing. Yeah. You can see in the film that the French players remonstrating, saying like, aren't you even going to give anything for that? Because that's that was just... Sheer aggression. That was that was nothing to do with football. And there's a similar one again that c- crops up in the '86 film. I think not not quite as violent as that, but where a French player's running through. Um, it was against Brazil, and I think it was Tafarel just runs out of his area, just pushes the player completely off course as he's running through on goal, and that didn't get a, a, a booking or anything either. So I don't know what, quite what was going on with the refereeing standards at the time, but but it's a bizarre one and. I mean, the thing I remember, I think, at the time was that on TV, they struggled to find a uh, a camera angle that showed what had happened. And yet on the film, they just about get it in frame and they do replay it and freeze frame it. So you can just see the moment when Schumacher collides with Battiston, which I thought was quite good, actually. Because on TV, I remember they that it took them a while before they went, ah, right, we've got a camera angle from behind the goal and we can show you it now. And so um, nice in the film that you get that straight away. Did you ever watch Fantasy Football League when that was on? Quite often, yes. And they used to do the Phoenix from the Flames part about recreating the old net. Now, I might be misremembering this, but did they do one about this? Because I'm sure there was a joke where, because (laughs) Harold Schumacher wouldn't agree to do it, they ended up having one of them was dressed up as Michael Schumacher <laughs> and, right. and did I, it in full sort of Formula One gear. But <laughs> I don't, I th- I'm, that's ringing very vague bells. I think they did. Um, I, I couldn't remember it when you first started describing that, but I think you're, you're onto something there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds about right. I might have to dig that one out on YouTube, but um, <laughs> the, the game ended free all after extra time. And uh, Connery described it wasn't a penalty kicks or penalty competition, as Barry Davis would say. It was a one of the teams had to die by Russian roulette. Yeah, a bit strong. Yeah, a, a dramatic way of putting it. But uh, Rick Waitman put a very heavy heartbeat soundtrack over the top, and I, I was, yeah. I think, I guess the most surprising bit was one of the Germans actually missed a penalty in the shootout. I know they got it on film and everything. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it actually yeah, happened. But- <laughs> Yeah, historical document. Do not delete. As per usual, the Germans won on penalties, knocked the French out, and uh, we were left with an Italy-West Germany final. Which I was just thinking about this, um, like, last last night and the night before when I was kind of watching the film again for the first time in a while. At the t- Like, you look back on that, and it was 3-1 to Italy, and you think, oh, wow, you know, World Cup final, four goals, great final. But actually, at the time, I'm not sure I was that, enamoured with it and it did actually take a lot, long time to uh, to get going that final um, and even now I'm not sure I look back on it as a classic particularly but the fact that there was four goals in it suggests that's, that's probably better than most 
Uh, but yeah, it was. It was. I think even sort of Connery references the fact that it was. It was quite turgid for most of the first half until uh, who's it? Somebody got a penalty early on. Was it Italy? Oh yeah, um, yeah uh, Cabrini. Cabrini gets a uh, takes a penalty. A firecracker goes off just before he's about to take it. So they get rid of that. Um, and then he misses the penalty. And I think it was from there onwards that literally um, things caught fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said, um, Italy, as Italy missed the penalty, he said, after the firecracker, they delivered a damp squib. <laughs> ah. Yes, but um, this was one of the... dialogue? <laughs> oh, no, it was very much dialogue. This was the part where he focused heavily on the cameramen obviously trying to fix a faulty device, saying they didn't miss much. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah. And the uh, description of Claudio Gentili, he'd shaved off his moustache in order to disguise himself from the referee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. I suppose this is, this is a final, and, and a lot of football finals tend to be quite dull, low-scoring affairs. And even this one with four goals and a missed penalty, it wasn't perhaps the most mm. electric. It's still memorable for a couple of reasons, though. I suppose the most was uh, Tardelli's celebration for the... It was the second goal, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, classic. And just obviously from that point on, um, got incorporated into every BBC World Cup opening title sequence that has ever been, pretty much, because <laughs> it's just, it is uh, quite rightly so. It's a, it's a real classic. Interestingly, in the film, you see that celebration from a slightly different angle, mm. and it just doesn't quite have the impact because on, on the TV, uh, you, you saw him head on running straight towards you, and it had that real dramatic impact but in the film it's more of a sort of side on view and you and it's a bit the camera's a bit further away so you don't see it quite as well but yeah i mean classic moment um absolutely and i was just thinking actually that in terms of the fact that it was a bit sort of dull at the start um i remembered that it was graziani got hauled off after six minutes because he'd done his shoulder mm. in and i think shortly after that it was brightner i think paul brightner went off i think for west germany so yeah. In like the first 20, 30 minutes, I think two key players have gone off. And so it's probably no surprise really that it was a bit sort of edgy for a while. But yeah, once once the goal started going in, it was it all it all really got going quite quickly. Um I did like after Tardelli's goal when the Italian sort of bench and squad tried to celebrate, uh, and there was Connery saying, the <laughs> Spanish police charmless to the last. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. They're all sort of like, if they were writing a script like that now, I'm not sure they'd be quite as sort of forthright in their views, I don't think, the script writers. No, but then I suppose after the uh, Catalan elections of a few months ago, it's, uh, it's probably still quite apt. <laughs> yeah. One thing that yes. I noticed that I, I guess sometimes gets forgotten is that at half-time of that game, there were some banners uh, looking forward to the next World Cup of uh, 1986 mm. in Colombia which at the time yeah. was still supposed to be the host, uh, something that yes. often gets lost. But uh, and, and as we'll touch upon, Mexico ended up taking that over and nearly losing that one as well. Yeah, I always think it's quite sad when you see that banner in the in the crowd because it's like a, they, they never, I presume it was somebody who was Colombian, um, and they never quite, you know, got the got the chance to sort of experience their own World Cup. I remember reading about that in World Soccer. They're saying, you know, Colombia has got the hosting rights. I thought, wow, that's that's a bit off piste as a as a sort of selection. But sad that it never got got to happen. But it, it nicely sort of time stamps where where it was in um, in history, I suppose. And at the final whistle, three one to Italy. There were the obligatory mentions of Dino Zoff's age, just to remind us that. Uh, yeah. At 40, Zoff has the world in his hands. 
hope, hope for some of us. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, my my wife caught the last bit of this film, and and as he was as Connery was saying this about Zoff being forty, she said, "Oh well, you've uh, you've got a couple of years yet." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, unfortunately, what neither you or I have is um, like a twenty-five year career playing at one of the, you know, one of Europe's top football clubs, leading up to that moment. Like we we'd be starting from scratch now if we were having to try that. Yeah. So Italy are the world champions. Sean Connery moves to Spain around this time. Shortly afterwards, he's substituted. Well, I guess is a nice way to put it, and uh, and replaced by Mr. Michael White. Michael Caine comes off comes off the bench. Mm. And uh, takes over the duties for the 1986 film of Hero. Yes, he given given all the sort of stereotypical impersonations of Michael Caine that have been done down the years, it doesn't sound like those impersonations. He sounds quite sort of quiet and somber, and actually adds a lot of gravitas to the film. I think, particularly in the in the opening sequence, which I think I mentioned earlier on, was it it starts off literally from from the first second with these scenes of um, an earthquake hit Mexico City, and it's it's quite a shock seeing that. When it when it first starts, you go wow. I mean, the, the whole place looks devastated as you'd expect, and you, you've got Michael Caine's commentary, and he and he and he treats it with the respect that, that you would hope for. So it's it's a good start in that sense, but it's also quite a somber one for you know a, a film which is going to show all the excitement and glory of of football, you know, international football. But he does a good job, Caine. But he, I think he was perhaps let down a bit more by the script. Yeah, I think there was a. Uh an emphasis on let's move slightly away from the humour. You know, Kane, he is, and, and part of his endearing charm is his accent or the way that he delivers his lines. He goes from the from the Italian job to something more reserved, especially, you know, some of his more recent films in I don't know, the, the Batman films where he's the butler and he comes across a very yeah. sort of knowledgeable and I suppose that comes with age. There were a couple of times when it kind of slipped and I, I don't think it was deliberate, but, and, and I guess it would almost sound pretentious if he put too much of a local emphasis on the pronunciation of names. But when he was talking about the Argentine mm. goalkeeper, uh, Pompido, he called him Pumpido, which did sound a little <laughs> bit tawdry coming out of his mouth. Pumpido's. <laughs> but I, to be fair to him, I think all of us as kids, when I was about fifteen, we were calling him Pumpido, so because we, we didn't know any better. But uh, but someone really should have um, trained him on that particular Pumpido's foible of of that dialect. I think the, the Spanish dialect. Pumpido's. And and there was the what I, I've been led to believe it is a sin of calling when he was talking about Michael Laudrup calling his club Juventus, which apparently is the worst thing you can do. <laughs> is that right? I didn't know. I probably still am calling Juventus. No, probably not. But no, they, I, I would say on balance, there were a few fewer uh, faux pas from, from Michael Caine compared to Sean Connery, but uh, but there yeah. were one or two there if you look for them. I mean, and as you say, the, the film has a very different angle. It focuses a lot more on a combination of the recurring story of Maradona and Argentina, but also on the big name players who were there at the time. Now, you did, I suppose you, you're quite lucky in 1986, you had a few players who were at their peak, players like 
Mm. Obviously, Maradona. He had uh, Michael Laudrup was probably the nearest in terms of quality. Platini was still playing at a very high level. Lin- mm. Lineker was at his goal-scoring peak. You know, he winning the Golden Boot. And you had others, Sanchez and Francesco Elkiar. It was more about the big names in the way that you'd expect uh, a modern-day World Cup film to focus purely on Messi, Ronaldo, Neymar, rather than the actual tournament itself. Sure, yeah. And, and you know, after that initial sort of scene with the devastation of the Mexico City earthquake, you then get this sequence of names of, of those players flashed up on the screen to leave you in no doubt that this is a... Yeah, this is a film about players and and really good players. But I mean, yeah, yeah, there were quite a few good ones. But it, it, it felt for a while like they were going to show the names of every single player playing at the World Cup. I mean, you had, <clears throat> I think the sequence goes: Maradona, Elkiar, Francesco Lee, Francesco Lee, Platini, Lineker, Rummenigge, Butragueno, Socrates, Laudrup, Sanchez, and I'm like, who? We, when's this going to end? You know, Pat Jennings, Alvin Martin, uh, Norman Whiteside, and yeah, I thought it's, it's going to go on forever. Peter Reed. <laughs> <laughs> If you must, they probably could have done with only half of those. But I suppose they would, like I say, they were trying to just emphasise this is this is genuine talent we've got in this World Cup, and you're going to go and you're, you're going to get to see it during this film. Um, so it's, yes, writ large in big letters on the screen. It's like the cast of The Expendables. <laughs> it's like the cast of Ben Hur. <laughs> the, the, the film opens. It's the opening game. It's uh, Mexico against Belgium. It's it's quite low key because it's mainly focusing on Sanchez and, and his return because he's playing overseas. You've then got a little bit about Uruguay, who are one of the sort of old hands of world football, winning the first World Cup, and they were the reigning. South American champions at the time. But what perhaps you're not expecting, and, and certainly something that shone very brightly for a few years but, but faded quite quickly, was the Denmark team. I read a book called Danish Dynamite a couple of years ago that was about the emergence and sort of very brief superstardom of the Danish team and it focused very much on 84 86 and and through to them winning Euro 92 but you kind of forget you know this team of players playing at a very high level beat Uruguay 6-1 they beat Germany 2-0 beat Scotland but again that's Scotland and <laughs> as people who are fans of nostalgia and football kits remember these guys in Hummel, classic Hummel outfits and huge numbers and everything else. But they really did look like the business for that first group stage anyway. Yeah, I was having a discussion with the aforementioned Rich Johnson only in the last 24 hours. Um, there's um, I won't say the name of the writer for fear of embarrassing them or humiliating them, but it was an article that was written on a website, a popular uh, sports website in the UK. I'll, I'll say no more than that, but it was basically a thing about the best kits in World Cup history or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they get to the West Germany kit for 1990, which is regarded by many as being like the best World Cup, the best football kit ever. And the comment that was made was something like, this was year zero in football kit design. Uh, There's never been a better kit than this. Um, This is where it all began. And I thought, if you go back two paragraphs, the same guys talking about the great Danish kit in the 86 World Cup. (laughs) So a short memory, really. But yeah, it was when I saw that and, and how they looked that, I mean, I'd never seen a football kit like it, really. Um, it was amazing. And as I've been saying on my own sort of website and, and in various places over the last few years, it's it's got so many elements to it, that kit, that it, it shouldn't work. And yet it's 
despite being a very complicated kit, it, it looks amazing. And it matched this team that nobody really knew anything about before the World Cup suddenly bursting onto the scene, as you say, beating beating West Germany and putting six past Uruguay. And a friend of mine at school said, who I thought knew more than me, <laughs> turns out it didn't, um, predicted Uruguay were going to win the World Cup that year. And I thought, well, that doesn't make any sense. Denmark have put six past them. So where does that leave us? It was just exciting times with that Danish team, actually. It only gets skirted over a little bit because they, you know, they, they spend a few minutes looking at that Uruguay game where Uruguay very much regressed to a almost a, a mid-60s era team where Alf Ramsey would call them animals. And yet they hmm. get past them. And, you know, again, it's only on further investigation. You look at some of the dynamics behind the scenes, but they show the player, I think it was after the Germany game, in the dressing room getting massaged and looking very relaxed. And again, that's the sort of thing where if you had an access all areas pass, you'd probably decide to liberate some of the kit bags and some of the kits and stuff just to, because you know that come 2018, <laughs> yeah. people will be willing to part with, I think in some cases, thousands of pounds for those tops. But Oh God, yeah. Similarly, there's, I think it's after the final, mm. so just to jump ahead, after the final, you see, I think Maradona changing his shirt with someone, t- taking his shirt off and swapping it with someone. I thought, Whoever that guy is in the Germany, West Germany side, that's I need to know where he lives so I can get that shirt from his house and steal it without Well, this is the irony, I believe, of the Argentina-England game come on to a little bit, and I suppose a bit hardly a spoiler alert when you talk about that game. Apparently, Steve Hodge got Maradona's shirt, not knowing that it was a handball, the first goal. Uh, he said he he didn't see it. Or I'm yeah. not sure if it was on the pitch, and so he got married on a shirt afterwards. And and people were sort of giving him stink eye and sort of going, "Why would you have his shirt?" And he goes, "Well, did you not see that second goal?" And then it turned out <laughs> yeah. that they did a documentary about the '86 World Cup on ITV a couple of years ago, and they spoke to him about it. And he said, "Oh, I, I didn't realise at the time, and it was worth all these thousands of pounds." And because He'd never really thought about it. He said he ended up donating the shirt to the National Football Museum. So Maradona's oh. shirt from the England game is at the museum up in Manchester. Well, that's, that's something. I had a feeling that you were going to say, um, and in the end, just used it for washing his car or something. You know, so that's, that's something. He didn't make too much money off it anyway. Going back to Maradona, you know, it's funny because this, this film as opposed to the World Cup we seem to be talking more about the football and everything else except for the film and in this case it was talking about Maradona against Korea and then they played Argentina um, Italy sorry and they said it was the only time they've had to come from behind throughout the whole tournament which was a bit of a spoiler spoiler alert in itself for those who don't want to know the result look away now (laughs) I quite enjoyed the bits actually just watching sort of Maradona playing in the first round because everybody talks about Maradona against England and Maradona against West Germany in the final or Belgium in the semi-final and stuff like that. So seeing how he played against the likes of South Korea and Italy and Uruguay was was, was quite good. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't really realise that they were only behind, only had to come from behind in one game in the whole competition. So 
There you go, Sean Connery. There's a, that's that's what's called a fact. You might want, to, <laughs> might want to use a few of those again if you get a chance in a in a commentary. Yeah. There was after this, they they went to France, who again were they were European champions at this point, and Platini was around his peak. He was, I suppose, eighty six. This was really his last mm. big tournament. But there was, and I, I assume it was a Wakeman thing rather than anything else. But there was this really annoying song every time France won and it was Viva, Viva, Viva Les Bleus and it just seemed like it was a little bit forced but um, that was one of the things I remember there. Oh yeah, well that's, that's the thing if you, I wanted, I wanted to actually just point out, if you like the music in the 1982 film if you go onto YouTube, the entire soundtrack is there, all of the tracks that Rick Wakeman did are all there individually on YouTube and somebody's created oh, a playlist and it's, and it's great, it's lovely music but the, I get the impression with the 86 film that somebody just sort of said to him, look, write a couple of bits of music. We don't need like a whole soundtrack. Just write a few bits of music and then we'll use other bits of music we can find which are native to that country. And, and in the case of that Viva Les Blur thing, I think that was just, that must have been just recorded by a group and it was probably in the charts in France at the time, I think, because it's, yeah, I don't think that's got anything to do with weight, but, uh, but there are a few bits like that which are, let's say, an adjunct to, uh, at an angle to what Wakeman was doing in the film. They were using a lot more native music let's say it was the same with the commentary i noticed at this point where again trying to remember that this film is almost certainly being made for an international market that the clips of the games that they show throughout the documentary they're usually shown using the if they're talking about a particular nation so if it's brazil or france or england using the host or that nation's commentary so uh, they'll have French or Portuguese or, or in England's case. And I didn't realise because I suppose instinctively you remember the coverage from BBC or ITV TV. But it was actually Byron Butler who did, say, the commentary in the England-Argentina game. And it wasn't, it wasn't the, the one that we all tend to remember about Maradona's second goal where it was Barry Davis saying, magnificent. But this was him talking about he's uh, wriggling like a little eel. Before England can recompose, still reeling from the disputed first goal, Maradona strikes again. Maradona turns like a little eel and comes away from trouble. Little squat man comes inside Butcher, leaves him for dead. Outside Fennec leaves him for dead and puts the ball away. And that is why Maradona is the greatest player in the world. He buried the English defence. He picked up that ball 40 yards out. First he left one man for dead, first he went past Saxon. It's a goal of great quality by a player of the greatest quality. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and again, the uh, a third mention for Rich Johnson. I, I shall be demanding a fee for this. <laughs> He's not getting one. No, that's quite, quite right. I'm not getting one. Uh, we, we discussed on a previous podcast, I think, I think Rich said it was the first time he'd ever heard that commentary the radio commentary when he watched this film for the first time and it's one of his favorite pieces of commentary and and rightly so and it's yeah it's from bbc probably from sports report or whatever the program was back in 86 on on the radio and and he's got this i think when maradona dribbles around every player in the england team and scores he i can't remember the wording was but he he sort of he starts off sort of saying and he's gone around uh, terry fennick and da, 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 and he never really kind of 
he doesn't go into any kind of Brian Moore style orgasm of joy at seeing this goal. He sort of almost stays matter of fact at the very end. He sort of says something like, and that is why Maradona is one of the best players in the world or something. And it's, it's, it's delightfully one paced, one like a, a, a single vocal octave, if that's the word yeah. I'm looking for, that, that he uses throughout as if to say, He's basically just gone round everybody and and scored like the, the the best goal you'll ever see. Just thought I'd mention <laughs> it, kind of thing. Like that was quite it, like, uh, deliberately underplaying it. it was, it's it's good commentary. That. It's quite um, again touching on something you mentioned earlier. Is you kind of think would that have been recorded at the time or would it have been done afterwards? Because um, and I guess a, a more modern trope is that a lot of commentators seem to treat every potential moment as. Uh, say with Martin Tyler and Sergio Aguero's goal that won Man City the title, where that gets played so many times that it's become its own mm. thing. And you kind of feel, do do some commentators almost hope that, well, if I make a big deal out of this goal, this will be what I'm remembered for. But that's, he yeah. sounded so calm and so restrained. And, <laughs> and of course, he's a professional, so that's his job. But, you know, it must have been difficult to watch that and not, get too carried away and, and seeing what was one of the greatest goals ever scored at well ever let alone a world cup yeah um i'm not sure uh, of byron butler's nationality actually whether he's because he sounds a little bit sort of irish to me i'm not sure if that's just my sort of an error of judgment on my, on my part but you know especially having seen the first goal going via a handball and then a second england goal conceded you're probably thinking oh God, you know, and and but of course you've just seen, as I say, one of the most amazing goals you'll ever see in your life, and he does well to kind of keep a lid on it in that sense. One thing that I was wondering actually is, well, actually, sorry, before I come on to the point I was going to make, I was just going to say, yeah, with regards to, oh, I'll pick a name out of the hat here at random, Peter Drury. Yeah, there, I think there is more of a tendency these days to sort of, oh, I can't prove it obviously, but you just feel like they've written the script ready just in case you know if if a goal like this is scored i'm going to say this in this way and it's i'm convinced there's a lot of that going on particularly with him i just i'm sorry he's just a commentator we we see a lot of or hear a lot of him over here um when there's a big let's say a big international game or tournament on we get the sort of um, FIFA tv feed that goes out to the minor countries that aren't interested in football we don't get the likes of your ITV and BBC commentators over here. We just get somebody who's just doing it for an international audience. And unfortunately, that is often Peter Drury, not one of my favourite commentators. Um, anyway, moving on from that, I was just going to say the other thing that crossed my mind while I was watching this is that they every time they focus on a different team and a, and a key goal going in in a key match, they do, as you say, use this like radio commentary from that country. So they will use German commentary for a German goal and, and so on. And you think that actually must have taken a lot of organisation to actually get that audio footage to be able to use it in the film because there would have been some of those countries may not have bothered recording it. I mean, you know what the BBC are like for wiping tapes and things. So <laughs> so did they contact them in advance and sort of say, look, we're doing a World Cup film. Can you record every single radio commentary because we might want to use it? Because if they did, that was really good sort of pre-planning on their part. It's But... I can't believe they would have contacted them afterwards and sort of said, have you got any recorded stuff from this game? Because a lot of those countries and their radio stations might not have had that available. I don't know. I suppose it would have been a lot of uh, cassette tapes having to be saved or maybe hoping that someone had recorded it in their bedroom while uh, like they used to do with the old Top 40. <laughs> yes, that's right. Pausing and fast-forwarding for the end. 
The one thing, and, and going back to Michael Caine, which we seem to have neglected hugely because I guess it's a lot lower key. One thing he did mm. mention in the uh, the France-Brazil game, and it was Brazil, um, Brazil got a penalty late on in that game. And I did like the fact that, you know, this was 1986 and Branco was brought down for a penalty towards the end. And he made a point of saying, Branco searching for pain in his leg, keeping an eye on the referee in the meantime. Now, it did look like a penalty. And I'm sure he did elaborate. But implying on a FIFA or approved documentary that basically he's simulating, or at least <laughs> search, <laughs> or at least uh, was, he left his leg in looking for a penalty, I suppose is the professional way of putting it. Yeah. Yeah, this whole thing of like you're yeah, rolling around on the floor, supposedly injured, but keeping an eye on the referee. And then when the decision's given, then like, hooray, we got a penalty. The the reaction was, it did sort of subscribe to that theory. But I think the foul initially was, was fairly genuine. Yeah. Um, it actually reminds me of one, I can't remember if it, if it was in the 82 film or 86. There's, I've got a feeling it was 82. Somebody fouls, one player fouls another. And the commentator says, Fouling taken to new heights um, in this tournament um, due to the um, knee nudge of whoever the player was. And that thought Uruguay game in '86. He uh, actually made a note of that, saying yeah. um, the foul was taken to new heights of expertise. Yeah, but I looked at that. They even freeze frame it. You think, or was it just that they they ran into each other? Because I'm not sure it was. I'm not sure it was as obvious as they were making out. But I might be just um, dis, being disingenuous towards them. I don't know. I still find it weird watching these films and looking at the number of back passes. Still a bit appealing for the indirect free kick when the goalkeeper picks it up. Yeah, that feeling of don't pick it. Oh, it's all right. Different. It's different times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's all right. It's 1986. Yeah, you're right. Look, a lot of things were allowed in 1986. But moving on. Argentina have beaten England and, and England really didn't get a lot of coverage in this because they completely ignored the first round. They went straight to the second round game against Paraguay, which they won 3-0 and talked about Lineker's uncanny ability to score goals, which, let's be honest, I don't want to do Gary Lineker a disservice. It's not like he's ever going to listen to this, but that was what he did. He was He's famous for being the ultimate goal hanger. Now, I know... It wasn't just that. I know, you know, his movement was exceptional, and he. But he was a goal scorer. That was what he did. He wasn't. He wasn't Maradona. He wasn't, you know, like a Messi or Ronaldo. That's what he did. Right. Kane's uncanny ability to state the bleeding obvious. Because <laughs> wasn't it in about eighty five, eighty six, when he was still at Everton that he finished as top goal scorer of the season? I think so. It's not. It wasn't a fluke. Era, Michael, I think you'll think you'll find he's got four. Yeah, because was it in the summer of '86? I think he went to Barcelona. You know, and even then he was still playing for England six years later and was only one off the record as it was at the time. So uh, anyhow, yeah, had it been had it been Peter Shilton, then <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, but um, but but Linux has scored a few before. I think you'll find. Yeah, we come to the second semi final because we've already seen the first one as they talked about um, France against West Germany and weirdly focusing on the dialogue between Platini and Rummenigge, who both played in Italy. There had to be an emphasis on them speaking their common language of Italian. West Germany won that 2-0. The other game against Belgium, again, Belgium sort of floating under the radar a little bit. There was another handball in there that was disallowed. This is where I made the note about Kane 
emphasizing the pumpedo a little bit. Pumpedo. Maybe it just made me giggle. What could I say? Pumpedo. And again, Argentina win 2 0. Yeah. So it's it gets to the final. So, I mean, the semi final may well as not, not have happened. There was a lot of emphasis on the final, rightly, um, but it opened on the the closing ceremony, which you don't always see, but uh, essentially it was uh, the national stereotypes of sombreros and Mexican waves. That's right, yeah. I've written down my notes here. It says, Mexican waves, flamenco dancers, ticker tape, flags. That's that's <laughs> pretty much all you need to know, really. I don't remember there being a closing ceremony back then. I don't even know if they... I suppose they must do one now, but it's not something you see, tend to see a lot on TV. You know, all, all the usual stuff... Again, it's easy to forget that the, you know, the Mexican wave was only a couple of years old then. I think it's seen for the first time at the 84 Olympics, so it's sort of still a novelty back then, and it never did quite catch on in England. I don't think, don't think anybody was having any truck with, with doing that at you know, Old Trafford or Bramall Lane or somewhere. But, yeah, I mean, just, just it's just the saturation of light. Uh, it just seems so ridiculously sunny and bright throughout a lot of that tournament, actually, and, and particularly in the final. It's just masses in the crowd in the stadium and and just this searing eye-rapingly bright sunshine you know and and soaking everything in brightness it was it's strange that really i mean i i remember this final and it was on a sunday oh, i'm not gonna put it, i think the kickoff was around five o'clock uk time it was a bit earlier than it is now yeah. which must have been yeah. what midday in mexico yeah which must have been home totally yeah and again, um, I'll go on and mention Rich Johnson again. I spoke to, I remember speaking to him before about this and, and the fact that, of course, now in a, in a hot country, they will play a lot of the games in the evening because it's cooler. But in Mexico, it was almost like, well, this is, we've got a chance here to sort of broadcast to a global audience. So we've got to make it good for Europe. So we'll have to play a lot of the games at midday because that's what you do when it's like 110 degrees Fahrenheit. So, uh, yeah. I made Strange. a note of the attendance. It was 114,000 was the, with the oh, official attendance for the final. Now, that's 114,000 people in the Mexican sun in midday on a Sunday afternoon in, <laughs> what was it, late June? Now, I know... I, I wasn't there, but that must have been horrendous. And I'd like to think our sales of After Sun must have gone up an awful lot afterwards. And sombreros, of course, yes. Because yeah, even um, there's a bit where they're showing you England playing Argentina, I think it was. And there's like a behind the goal camera. And you can see in the distance, it's just like an entire city is just like sat down at the other end of the stadium in the background. And it's. You think, my God, that's a ridiculous amount of people, and um, and yeah, and, and making them sit out in the <laughs> yeah, mad dogs and Englishmen, and probably half of Mexico City as well, <laughs> you know, is sitting there. It's it's extraordinary. You just wouldn't do that now. Although I'm not sure what they've got lined up for Qatar, but um, we'll see about that. Makes sense why they're playing that one in uh, November. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and again, going back to the England game where. Every England or the few England games across both films were soundtracked by the um, just a faint song of England, England, <laughs> you know, just to kind of push it home that this was the era, and there were the the very pasty looking guys in sleeveless tops and short shorts and just looking thoroughly out of place, very very not not blending in. 
No, uh, I would just say, actually, it's, it's very much a trope of the World Cup films that there's this strange approach to overdubbing sound effects. Mm. Like when occasionally like someone will have a shot on goal and it will be like someone hitting a punch bag or I think in the 66 film, you see a guy running down, the, like an England player running down the wing and it's like someone's shaking a bag of sugar, cause, which, which would only make sense actually if they were running on a sort of cinder track or something, but they, they're running on grass, so I'm not quite sure why you get this shh, 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 shh sort of sound. So they, but they did that for year after year in these World Cup films. I just felt like they needed to just add a bit of extra oomph to the, to the soundtrack just by doing these rather basic sound effects. Now, the final itself was, I suppose, relatively exciting. Uh, Argentina went 2-0 up. Uh, West Germany came back to equalise, and uh, Argentina won sort of with a, a late goal. I did like the fact that Argentina's first goal was scored by Jose Brown. There's a, a nice little <laughs> yeah. side there. But um, the one bit of trivia I got from that game was uh, the Argentine manager, Biardo, was, his nickname was El Narigon, which translates literally as Big nose. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> Stick him in life of Brian and see how he gets on. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. That's what I learned something. <laughs> um, and, and to be honest, that's pretty much the end. Um, we've got some clips from behind the scenes of Maradona leading the, the chants of Argentina in the dressing room. Uh, they lift the trophy. One little thing from the end credits that I picked out was a special thanks to Arsenal FC. Yeah. I don't know why Arsenal FC were involved. I'm not going to pretend to know, and even though I'm an Arsenal fan, and this was 1986, I can't imagine they got many fans into Highbury to sing England and record the sounds then. That's surely the only explanation there could have been. I, even now that's puzzled me. I remember seeing it at the time and like, so what's that all about? Because um, I'm, I'm not aware of too many international star players that were playing for Arsenal back then. I think in 1986, the only Arsenal player who would have featured be Kenny Sansom, I suppose. J- uh, Charlie Nicholas, maybe? I don't know. He might have been in the squad. But yeah, but yeah, definitely Sansom. But there must be that could be a, a project for a future time. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Um, I, I did. There's a couple of other things in the credits um, which I bothered to sort of follow up. If you're interested, which is the I talked about the the scriptwriter for the '82 film. The '86 film was written and directed by a guy called Tony Malam, and he was involved in a film. I'm guessing not many people have seen it. It was called Cup Glory. And it was a film made to celebrate the centenary of the uh, the football association in 1972. And it was um, if you, it's on YouTube, go and go and check it out, listeners, because it's it's a nice little again a sort of slice of life thing about football back in the early 70s in England. And he was involved in that, and he was also involved in uh, a film called Genesis in Concert, which was done in 1976. <laughs> which is literally is what it is. It's it's the the group Genesis on tour, and um, he was involved in that rather randomly. And the other thing to mention i saw his name come up in the credits and i thought where do i know his name before now where have i heard his name before supervising editor ray millichope does that name ring any bells with you no again it was like "Mm, Mm -hmm. heard that name where do i know um he was the uh editor on programs including and these are fairly minor uh monty python's flying circus uh the two ronnies porridge last of the summer wine q9 the Liver Birds, and not only, but also. So 
he kind of knew a thing or two about editing footage together. And that, uh, that is some pedigree. Oh my god! I knew I'd seen his. I must have seen it on the credits of um, Monty Python, I think, in, down the years. But um, what I, I, I thought. Yeah, that's where I'd have seen his name <laughs> on some of the biggest comedy programs known to mankind. Blimey, that's a, that's an impressive CV that's been completely tarnished. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a short version. I mean, if you look up on I don't know IMDb or whatever, I mean, he's done far more programs than that. I'm just giving you the the big ones, and and there are many of them actually. Oh, superb. Well, um, we're just cutting the run up to the 2018 World Cup, and. I'll ask one question that I normally ask of a guest, and I'll I'll rephrase it slightly. Um, If there was an official FIFA film of this tournament, whether there will be or not, I don't know, which, say, actor, British actor, do you think would be a good fit to narrate that tournament? Um, I I, I know this is probably an easy, it's like low-hanging fruit, given we've mentioned Sean Connery, but someone like Daniel Craig, I think, would work quite well. As a, as a narrator, he's got that kind of um, serious voice. It wouldn't be too good on humour, I don't think, but um, but I think Daniel Craig would work quite well. I'm trying to think who else. It would probably end up being someone like you know Cumberbatch or somebody, probably, wouldn't it, I guess? <laughs> it's funny to go back to a Bond thing, because I believe there's a version of the 2006 film that's narrated by Pierce Brosnan. That's right, yes, you're yeah. quite right. Because yeah. that wasn't the one, because before the 2014 tournament, the BBC showed all of the films on Saturday mornings mm. in the run-up, and they showed a version of 2006 that wasn't by Pierce Brosnan. But the so Aver- I'm led to believe, yeah. But the Averact, because uh, 1990 was Edward Woodward. can't remember who did the 94 one, but Sean Bean did the 98 one. So <laughs> yeah. there's a, I suppose, a a cabal of actors queuing up these gigs. But um, yeah. If you want to go on the phone to my agent, I want to do a, a narration job for the World Cup films. Yeah, um, yeah it's, uh, I think the 94 one was done by an, an American actor whose name I can't remember, but yeah, um, but, but again, an actor. Yeah. Whereas I say some of those early ones like that were retrospectively added into the official film sort of canon were... Uh, they did actually tend to use actual voiceover actor. Uh, act, act, I can't even say it. Actual voiceover artists. I think so. Um, you you've still got to get a good actor, haven't you, with a distinctive voice? Otherwise, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and it's strange. Oh, I'll tell you who did it. Nineteen ninety-four. It was a uh, Lee Schreiber, recently yes. seen on uh, Ray Donovan, and I think uh, various films. He was in one of the Wolverine films. But, um, mm. I'm not sure if, if FIFA even bother. I know that they've moved their filmmaking business into the uh, the more dramatic I haven't even got around to seeing the mm. was it United Passions which had uh, Tim Roth and Gerard Depardieu <laughs> yeah no I've not seen that one that yeah that, that, that was their one. attempt at I think it was probably laundering money but um well, hopefully they might be hearing this even <laughs> Tim Roth played <laughs> Sepp Blatter and it was just it was universally panned and i'm sure it was just a vanity project by blatter just to uh, to try it was like the version of the mr burns film in the simpsons where he was trying to make himself simp- <laughs> yeah yeah very much so i think yeah <laughs> well um chris it's been a pleasure um now we talked before about kit bliss um but in the since the last episode you were on you've set up a patreon account which as a subscriber myself, is offering great value. Um, what else can people get if they 
stick their hand in their pockets to help you out. Uh, well, for as little as $1 a month, uh, yeah, you'll get access to uh, the sort of two podcasts that I create every month. One is a sort of a big like hour, hour and a half long podcast that I do with people like Rich Johnson and uh, John Devlin and Jay from designfootball.com. Um, and then there's a sort of smaller one as well, like a 10, 15 minute podcast that I do also every month. So there's that. And there aren't many football kit podcasts around. So it's hopefully it's sort of worth its um, $1 a month in, in, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, in value. And um, occasionally there will be early access to see things before they arrive on the Kiplis website and also sort of bonus items as well. Like I'm, I sort of create illustrations for, for the Kiplis website and sometimes I'll sort of compose the illustration in a way that you can download and print it off and make your own posters and stuff like that. I'm starting to do a bit of that. Uh, I'm trying to think what else really. Just advance notice of a lot of stuff that's that's due to come up. Um, one thing talking about the World Cup that I'm doing on the website is a competition called the World Cup of World Cup Kits. So, um, you know, there'll be sort of there's videos uh, that are going to be made for that and information about that. So, if you basically if you if you put your hand in your pocket and donate every month, you'll get access to all those kind of things. And also, just it, it's very worthwhile um, financial support for me, just so I can buy reference material really, because obviously a lot of the, there's a lot of research involved in sort of. Uh, illustrating football kits so any donations are very gratefully received and thank you for mentioning it rich no, no it's my pleasure and uh, i say it's it's the only one that i pay to uh, subscribe to at the moment and it's uh, certainly good value for money now as a becoming an increasingly part-time football fan these days to, to uh, work and children and doing well this quite frankly but uh, <laughs> yes yeah, it's, it's nice to uh, to keep an eye in on something i have a particular interest in and of course oh, you're very kind I suppose this is one of the few excuses I've got to do a football angle on this podcast. Um, I'm, I'm hoping at some point later this year to do the aforementioned Escape to Victory podcast. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Michael Caine showing us that side of his football knowledge. <laughs> Physical side. <laughs> and um, I, I didn't quite fancy stretching this to 1990. There's, a, there's more than enough coverage of 1990 in the various propaganda and documentaries and stories going out about that so uh, i'll leave that to uh, greater minds than myself as as i say um, <laughs> i i'm and I'll, I'll warn you now there will be some music at the end of this podcast i'm yet to decide what it's going to be because it's split into two so i haven't even bothered to look up who was number one at the time of the world cup finals of 82 86 but uh, i've thanks to chris's nudge earlier on there is a playlist on YouTube of Rick Wakeman's work from 1982. Chris, as before, <laughs> thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you. Likewise, Richard. Thank you for inviting me on. It's been an absolute pleasure going down memory lane once again. <laughs> and uh, hopefully I look forward to welcoming you back in the future. Good man. Thanks very much, Rich. This podcast is part of Brit Pot Scene, 
an independent network of uniquely British podcasts that's always growing. Check out BritPodScene.com or BritPodScene on Twitter to find out more. Oh.